Hello and welcome back to the very much anticipated episode two. Some will say the one we've all been waiting for. So a big welcome to Let's Get Talking series two and episode two with Carol Baskin. Now lots of people have asked how I managed to get Carol on the show and simply put I heard her tell her story on a different podcast. I messaged her on Instagram and she obliged and it was a brilliant conversation that we had. We spoke as you'll hear very very shortly about Carol's upbringing, her childhood, all the way through to obviously Tiger King and and her work that she's doing now and it was a great conversation. During the conversation, sort of five to ten minutes in, Carol's phone does ring. You know, it shows that the podcast is honest, it's raw, it's natural. There's not a lot I can do about that. Carol was really apologetic but honestly guys, it only lasts for a few seconds and I mean the whole conversation is brilliant. Before we get on to that conversation in episode two of series two, I just want to say a big thank you to all the supports that, that's happened and that's come through since the podcast has come back. We're hitting loads of different countries. We're nearly at 4,000 on Instagram, so that's amazing. So a big thank you. So that's all from me. Really, really enjoyed recording this episode, so I really hope you enjoy listening. So sit back and relax, you cool cats and kittens, and let's get talking with Carol Baskin. So welcome back to series two and episode two, which I have to say is a very special one and one I'm really, really excited for. And it gives me great pleasure to welcome Carol Baskin to Let's Get Talking. Carol, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Yeah, very good. Thank you. I know we, like we've just spoke about before we started recording, we've been going back and forth a little bit with different technical issues and, and Wi-Fi and things like that. So thanks so much for giving up your time to, to speak to me um, today. Like I said, here at Let's Get Talking, we're about opening up the conversation on mental health experiences and journeys and just having an open and honest conversation um, like I said, on all things mental health and journey, emotions and everything. So I'm really chuffed to, to have you on the show. Just so all of the listeners at the moment get a picture of, of us at the moment. I'm sat in my spare bedroom at home in the UK. It's just gone nine o'clock in the evening. Where are you in the world and what time it is? And I think it's a little bit lighter and I think earlier there where you are. <laughs> it's 5 p.m. here in Tampa, Florida. And I stayed home today. So this is my home office because it's my 19th anniversary with my husband and our 17th anniversary of being married. So I stayed home today for that. Wow, congratulations. That's a great start. Congratulations to you both. Um, before we get into, you know, the real depths of your story and journey, um, I'd love to take you sort of all the way back to the beginning. I know from looking in little things about your story and hearing you on different podcasts and things like that, I think it's fair to say your experience of childhood and growing up was could be probably likened to a, a roller coaster. It was very up and down. I think it's fair to say, I think you moved around a lot. Can you tell us all about that and maybe what your school experience was like? A lot of the listeners are actually the students at my school. So that'd be a, obviously a great thing to, to talk about as well. But if I can take you right back to the start, that would be excellent. Okay. I was actually born in San Antonio at the Air Force Base, but my father was only in the Air Force for four years. And then we moved back to Tampa. And then my father was one of those really entrepreneurial type people, very, um, a real daredevil. He he loved to fly planes. He taught uh, flight. He became the pilot for the governor of West Virginia. And so we moved a lot. 
And my mother was always the stationary person. You know, she held down the longest jobs and <laughs> she was the, the stable rock in our, in our family. But both of them were workaholics. And so they were always working, which meant I was being raised by both my mother and father and my grandmother's own, grandmother and grandfather on my mother's side. And from the very beginning, it was a very different life because my family was very poor. We lived in trailers. Um, my grandmother lived in very opulent settings, you know, white shag carpets and velvet on the walls and everything was gilded in gold. And it wasn't because she was so wealthy. It was because she had picked cotton as a child and gotten married when she was like 14. And so when she had a little bit of money, she wanted people to think she had a lot of money. And so she had servants and, you know, I mean, it was just really, really different. Every day I went to live in that kind of environment. And then I came home to live with my family in our trailer. And so, um, like I said, we did move around a lot. So I spent first grade in one place and then I think second grade in another city and then third and fourth and fifth grade back up in West Virginia. And then sixth grade moved back to Tampa, Florida stayed there through the ninth grade and then moved back to West Virginia. So I was always in different schools, plus the fact that even though my family was poor, they wanted me to have a good education. So in those early years, I went to a private school. And in the private school, there was only like 24 students in the biggest class that we had. And there was like one first grade class, and one second grade class. And they were very, very small classes. But my father at that time had a, a lawn care business and the company that he did most of his lawn care was merged with another company who had their own lawn care business. And so we had to sell our house and our cars and everything. And I had to be taken out of public, out of private school. So it wasn't until I was, um, what was it, like 10th grade, I got thrown back into private or public schools and was not at all prepared for classes that were 60 people mm. and, you know, huge, huge populations of people that were very different from me <laughs> or anything I had ever seen in my life. <laughs> and so um, it was a real startling kind of a thing. I mean, when I went back to public school, they couldn't read in the 10th grade and the teacher would leave me in charge of the class and tell me to teach these people how to read. And it was like, it was just, yeah, I left after the 10th grade because it was like, I'm not learning anything here. Wow. So I left home very early and then lived on the street for a while, ended up getting married by the time I was 17. I had my daughter when I was either 19 or 20. And um, it's just been, it, <laughs> it's been a lot of work because I was working sometimes three jobs at a time to keep us fed. So looking back on, I suppose that experience of you know moving around quite a lot and moving schools and that sort of contrast between like you say the private and the public schools what are some of the sort of things that you look back on and sort of the lessons that you learned or maybe things that you took away and how it shaped your character obviously going from you know all of that experiences and then going into sort of your your 20s and onwards is there anything that you look back on and go yeah that actually really helped or you know what well, that was really detrimental or anything like that at all you know, it's kind of hard because I raised my own daughter in private schools, but if I look back on what that did in my life, I, I look at that and think I probably should have raised her in public schools because when you're raised being so sheltered and only surrounded by people who believe like you believe or like your family believes, 
then you're not really getting a, a well-rounded experience of what the real world is like. And sooner or later, you're going to get dumped out there into the real world and you're not going to be prepared. I was not prepared. And I think I probably created that same situation for my daughter where she was not or would not have been prepared. The difference was that when she was 12 is when we started the sanctuary. And so from the time she was 12 years old, she was helping me run the sanctuary. So she never had to go out and get a job or live amongst other people because she's always been working at the sanctuary. Mm-hmm. If she had to go out today and start a real world and a real life, I, I, I don't think I've prepared her for that. Mm. And I think that's such a powerful message to, to start us off with in terms of, you know, opening yourself up to different things and different experiences to make yourself obviously ready for the real word, so to speak, especially some of the students that I'm working with at the moment are ready, are just about to leave school and it's daily conversations about, you know, you, you need to be ready for what's coming next, obviously, especially in a post-COVID world, um, lots of difficult things going on at the moment. So that's a really, really great starting point. A lot of previous guests that we've had on the show as well have spoken about how relationships and different friendships in earlier life have had sort of a positive or negative um, effects on things, you know, like confidence and self-esteem or self-worth. Would you ex- say you experienced any of that with your sort of early friendships or relationships, perhaps? Never really had close relationships with friends because I moved so much. Mm. And the people that I had been friends with were people that, um, I think I put my trust in them when I shouldn't have. Mm. And uh, a good example of that is you would think that if you're going to church and you're going there with all of your little friends from church, that those people are all sharing your same life experience and are going to be very much like you. So I was, I think my parents would have told you I was like the perfect child growing up. I took care of, you know, when I got older, I took care of my brother who was six years younger than me. I made sure that there was dinner on the table when my parents came home from work. I was mowing the yard and cleaning the house and doing all of that kind of stuff. And I just expected that everybody was like that. And yet found myself putting my trust in a girlfriend of mine from church and thinking she must be very much like me, even though I could tell she was a little bit wilder. (laughs) Um, (laughs) That got me into some trouble early on in my life. And she actually ended up selling me to three guys that lived in the neighborhood for drugs. Mm. And I was a virgin at the time. And so she sold my virginity to them. And I didn't even know that she had done that. I mean, I knew what happened to me, but um, I didn't know that she was a party to it until years later when I was helping her get out of a a, uh, domestic violence situation. And she said, I can't believe that you would come and help me after what I did to you. And then she spilled her guts. And then it was like, wow, (laughs) that was a a real wake up call that somebody that I would have trusted so much would have done something so horrible to me. But, you know, I don't hold it against her because she was on drugs and she wasn't making good decisions. And people, when they get involved in drugs, they just do stupid things and they get themselves in deeper and deeper into things. And so um, I don't have any hard feelings against what she did, but it changed my attitude about myself forever because in my world, if a woman was raped, the church was so fundamental in their beliefs that they believed the woman must have brought it on herself. In my case, I was just going over to these people's house because we thought we were all going to go over and listen to music. 
and that's not at all what they had in mind mm. so it, it made me feel like I was unworthy that I couldn't be loved I couldn't have a good relationship and I left home at the age of 15 feeling um, like everybody was everybody was a threat to me and so I ran away from home with a guy that was six foot four big bruiser of a guy that was so violent to me and yet I was with him because I felt like I knew him and I didn't know who other threats out there might be. And so it was safer with the devil that I knew than the devils that I didn't know. And I put up with a lot of abuse out of that relationship because I felt like the world was such a scary place because I didn't know what the world was because I hadn't had a really good um, example of it. I just had some really horrible examples of it. So if I, you know, gotten a a little piecemeal at a time of growing up as a child and learning there's some people you can trust and other people you can't trust and yeah. you're better off by yourself than with some abusing man then I think my life would have been very different but I don't you know I don't regret anything that has happened because I think everything that happens in our life is supposed to and it always ends up for the best yeah and like you said a lot of valuable lessons across along the way there in terms of trust and friendships and relationships and things like that so thank you for, for sharing that um before we get on to sort of the the next sort of stage of your journey um obviously with, like you've already mentioned the sanctuary and and you, obviously your love of cats and of course tiger king which i had on on netflix can i just this it might be a bit of a random question but can i just ask what your first ever experience um was with a tiger the first one you saw perhaps i know that might be really random but i thought that might be just a nice little way to kick us off on the next part and Maybe you've been asked that before. I don't know. <laughs> no, I don't think I have. Um, I don't remember ever being up close to a tiger until we got Sher Khan. And I'd have to look online, but I'm thinking that that would have been somewhere in the neighborhood of like 1995 or 96. Yeah. Um, and so we had done rescues from fur farms where we had rescued 56 bobcats and lynx and then 28 bobcats and lynx the following year and 22 the following year and people started calling and saying would you take my lion would you take my tiger and I'm thinking what on earth are people doing with those cats but we didn't take their lions and tigers because I knew nothing about lions and tigers <laughs> and my husband and I had gone my husband liked to fly as well and so we had gone cross country to Indiana and this guy had some leopards that my husband wanted to look at and I had never seen leopards up close. And so I was curious about that. And when we got there, these, this one tiger, his name was Tony, which is not very <laughs> original, but I kid you not, if I had put my arms around that cat's head, I don't think I could have touched them around the top of his ears. He was such a huge tiger. And he was just in this tiny little, like a dog run kind of a thing. And I was just blown away at the size of this animal. I had never seen a tiger that big. And inside the house, he had a tiger in a pet taxi, you know, like a carrier. Wow. And it was just like busting at the seams because this cat was way too big for the carrier. And the whole thing was like rocking in the corner. And I asked him, you know, why is that cat in here? Or why is he not with his mother? And he said that he had sold him, pre-sold him as a white tiger, but because he was golden, the people didn't want him. 
And my husband said, well, I'll take him. And so we had to tear the whole back seat out of our plane in order to get that big old pet carrier in there. But he came home with us and he grew up to be a 750 pound tiger, kind of like his dad, really, really huge, but just the sweetest, sweetest cat. But that, I think that was my first experience. experience. Amazing. Um, so obviously moving on to, to Tiger King, like I just mentioned, it was released here in the UK um, in early March last year, obviously right sort of bang in the middle of, uh, of our COVID lockdown. And it did really turn into sort of like the must watch show at the time. Before we talk about that experience, what came before Tiger King? Can you remember being aware of like the intention to do the show and the, and the build up obviously to filming it? Can you talk a little bit about sort of that experience? we had filmed with the producers for five years before the show came out and we had worked with a lot of producers over the years. I've been in, um, I don't know if you guys have it over there, but animal planet had a show called fatal attractions. Mm-hmm. I had been in an episode of that. My daughter had been in another episode of that. And anytime the media or film production companies wanted to come out to the sanctuary, we would let them do that for free and let them film as long as they were going to use the footage to help cats. That was our only caveat. And so we would be talking to them about why they don't belong in cages, why there shouldn't have to be places like ours rescuing cats from horrible situations. We needed to just end those horrible situations. Mostly we needed to get rid of cub petting because that's what drives the vast majority of the breeding, the abuse, and then discarding these cats into backyards and basements or killing them for their parts. And so we were talking to everybody and this company had come in and said, did you, were you familiar with Blackfish? Yes, yes, yes. So what they said they wanted to do was the cat version of Blackfish. So we were all on board with that. And we worked with them, like I said, for five years, anytime they wanted to come out, we would film with them. We introduced them to all of the experts who could talk about why these cats don't belong in cages and how breeding them in captivity is actually causing their extinction in the wild, which is kind of a hard concept for people to wrap their heads around. And so when the teasers came out in 2020 for this show called Tiger King, we called them up and we said, who's working on that show? Because everybody in Hollywood knows everybody else and what they're working on. And it was like, they had told us Joe Exotic would be like, you know, a very tiny piece of this, but that they were going to cover all of this abuse at all of these different places. And um, all of a sudden they didn't want to talk to us. (laughs) And so it was like, well, we better watch and see what this is about because it's showing that we're in it. (laughs) We don't have any idea how that that came about. So we sat there and binge watched it just like everybody else. And at the end of it, my husband and I looked at each other and said, well, that was a missed opportunity because that's all we thought it was. We thought they had just, you know, talked about stupid stuff and not really the important things, which were the animals and the abuse and what people could do to change it. And then all of a sudden, my phone was just ringing off the hook with people screaming obscenities at me and saying how they wanted to kill me and they wanted to kill my family and they wanted to kill the cats. And I'd be like, well, wait, why do you want to kill the cats? And they'd say, because they don't belong in cages. And I thought, how did they just watch seven episodes of that and not figure out that I'm the one person trying to end these cats from being bred for life in cages? They just didn't get it. And so I had, I watched it seven times to try and figure out why are people so angry at me? What on earth made people so mad at me about this? Because I just didn't, I couldn't conceive that anybody could believe 
the animal abusers who were saying that I had killed my husband and fed him to the tigers. They couldn't even keep a straight story. They're saying I killed him and put him under the septic tank. I killed him and fed him to the tigers. I killed him by throwing him out of a plane. And it's like, you know, make up something and stick to your story, but I can't be all of those things. And it's none of those things. And in fact, that's so fascinating to hear that you sort of went through the same experience watching it as, as the rest of us. Obviously that's you watch it and you obviously we we had the impression that everyone that was on the show knew they were on it and were involved in it so that's fascinating to, to hear that you sort of went through the same experience but it was yourself on the on the screen as well yeah and just today we actually filed a lawsuit against them um, for putting us in this trailer that they have out there because we didn't sign up for that mm. It's incredible to hear. And you mentioned, you touched on it obviously really briefly there about sort of the, the backlash that you received straight away after it was released. Um, obviously, the show is all about, you know, talking about um, difficult experiences and emotions and, and well-being. Um, what sort of effects did that, obviously, the release of the show have on you personally? And how did you deal with that sort of um I would, well, I would like to say criticism, but that would be the wrong word. In term, I would say abuse, really, like you say, in terms of people ringing you up and saying, rah, 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 this, this and that. How did you deal with that? Because obviously that must have been a strange experience because even more now knowing you didn't really know the, the whole thing about the show anyway. Yeah, I, I think it was a lot harder on my family than it was on me. And if you think about that, if somebody were saying all of the horrible things that people said about me, if they were saying that about you, you'd be mm. like, that's not who I am. I didn't do that. And so you have that sense of this doesn't apply to me because this isn't who I am. But the people around you feel like they have to protect you and they're worried that you're going to be upset by what people are saying. And so they're constantly trying to run interference, you know, trying to protect you and trying to um, make it clear that you're a good person and that other people should think better of you. And so I think it was far harder on my daughter and my husband my mother people like that than it was on me and how obviously you you said earlier on in the conversation about the things that have happened to you in the past and how you sort of bounced back from that and showed resilience and, and everything like that did you sort of lean on those experiences to sort of get you through what happened after Tiger King was released or like you say was it more sort of about you supporting your family and like you say your daughter and people like that through it I, I've always believed, as far back as I can think, um, I've just had a really strong gut feeling that everything is unfolding the way it should, and that no matter how horrible something might seem in the moment, that there is good that's going to come of it. And so sometimes it may be a very long time <laughs> before you figure out what that good is. But it seems like it always does come around that way, even if even if it is just to be an example to others of things not to do, you know, don't trust people that you don't know well. And um, I think everything has actually turned out for the best. And in some cases, you know, I'm still waiting to find out what that betterment or what that better thing is or that better world is. But I really believe that. And so if there was some way to impart that on people who are struggling, I, I, I read a woman's post on Facebook recently, and she was talking about just wanting to die because there was nobody left in her life. And she was so sad and lonely. And 
And I'm thinking, you know, if there were just some way to convey to people that everything is working exactly as it should, and it's all turning out for the best, then they wouldn't have feelings like that. They would be just looking for, okay, well, what is the silver lining? Which is what I always do with everything that happens. I'm like, you know what? Maybe like last year, I expected our federal bill to pass and I had all of my hopes and desires on getting our federal bill through Congress. Our federal bill bans cut petting and it phases out private ownership. And we got a hearing before the House in December and we passed with a majority, a two thirds majority and that like never happens. And so, you know, it was fabulous. And it was like, yes, after working on this since like 1998, this law is finally gonna happen. And it didn't, it didn't go to the Senate for a hearing. And so instead of being all bummed out by that, I was like, okay, well, there's some reason why it's gotta happen next year because it's going to impact more people or it's going to have some greater effect. And so by having that as my underlying belief, it helps me to deal with everything that comes down the pike that's a disappointment. Yeah, and that is really that, obviously, like you said, that taking that negative experience and, and either turning it to a positive one or looking for the positive. And I think that's such a, a good message for people to hear, no matter what you're going through. I suppose it's looking for that positive or realising that whatever's happening is happening, like you say, for a reason and that there is something coming um, for you. Um, I did have a question, um, but I've sort of I think we've answered it now because I've realised that you didn't really know that Tiger, the first Tiger King was happening. But in the UK here, we've they've just announced the second series of Tiger King has come into Netflix. Um, and the question was going to be, are you involved in any way? But I presume you didn't even know about the first one. So I guess the second one's off the table. Yeah, they they actually reached out to us a few months ago and they said, oh, you know, we just want to clear the air with you. And we said. Well, what I said was, no, lose my number because, you know, fool me once, shame on you, but fool me twice, shame on me. So I wouldn't even talk to them. And then when I saw that they were putting this trailer out there and I'm in it, that was when we were like, all right, we can't stand by and let them get away with this. Our contract did not. And our contract was just a release form, but the release form was for a documentary. One, I don't think Tiger King was anything anywhere close to a documentary, but it's for sure this Tiger King 2 thing is not a documentary. And we didn't agree to the second one. We didn't sign another release form. So we felt like we had a good case to bring against them for even using any of our images and to, to make them stop. So you're definitely you're expecting not to see yourself in this series of Tiger King then. <laughs> but I suppose I you- expect to win this. <laughs> yeah, good on you. Um, so moving on after obviously um Tiger King and those experiences, what what work are you doing right now? Obviously, it's been great to hear about your journey up until this point. So it'd be great to hear what your sort of your future plans are and and moving forward. Probably one of the most exciting things that we have coming up is Carol Baskin's cage fight. And that's coming to the U.S. on November the 13th. And I think it might be coming to the U.K. on November 13th as well. It'll be on Discovery+. Plus. And it actually shows what we've been doing all these years. And it's the reason why all of the animal abusers that you saw in Tiger King hate us so much mm-hmm. is because we've been working to end the abuse that they profit off of. And so it, the Carol Baskin's cage fight is us going after all of these animal exploiters and getting the evidence necessary to hand over to the authorities so that they can actually stop the abuse. 
the government has the ability to do undercover work and to gather this kind of information. They just don't do it. Mm -hmm. And so it's up to private citizens to gather and make the cases for them and then put enough pressure on them to actually do something about it. Well, I'm really looking forward to, to seeing that, obviously, if it does reach us over here in the UK. Um, and so, sort of circling back, obviously, right at the start of the conversation, you said it's your um, wedding anniversary today. And I'm actually getting married myself next year. So um, Congratulations. have you got any, any, any marriage advice for me, Carol, at all? I do. My husband had the smartest idea. He's so smart. He's a Harvard MBA and he had been a banker for many years. And it, when we got married, it was his first marriage. He was in his 50s and never been married before. And so he said, I want us to write a constitution of how we will deal with each other when things are hard. Mm. It's easy to get along with people when things are good. But when there are crazy things going on, like hitmen being hired to kill you and having to defend your intellectual property and all of the kinds of things that we've had to do, you can get kind of stressed out. You can get short and snippy with each other. And so the constitution that we wrote out were the ways that we would deal with each other when we were under stress. Mm. And we put it in writing. We made it part of our wedding vows to each other. And I think the most, if you were to take all of the different things we said, I think they all boil down to one underlying thought. And that is whenever people have couples, whether they're married or not, when they have fights, it's usually not over whatever the thing is. You know, if you left your underwear on the floor and she's like, why don't you ever pick up your underwear? It's like, this is not really a fight about your underwear. It's about all the times you left your underwear on the floor. And so if you never do anything or say anything to each other, that could then be something that could be dragged forward into a new argument if you just stop yourself short and don't say what's, you know, don't say that mean thing that you're thinking in your head, don't roll your eyes, don't um, do anything that you would later have to ask forgiveness for, then you never have those big arguments because there's just, there's nothing there. And that has served us so well to the point where in all of these 19 years that we've been together, we still haven't had our first fight we have come so close a couple of times and thankfully both of us are like, you know what, I'm having a really bad day and I'm, I'm willing to discuss this with you, but not right this minute. Like <laughs> tomorrow might be really good. A bit later. We never get back to it because <laughs> it's never a big deal. It's always just dumb stuff. Of course. Well, I'll take that forward. And um, when we get, when we get married next year, that could, that could be big play a part in the vows, as you said, who knows? Um, and if you wear a tiger toga, that'll probably. Be. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I always ask my guests on the show, obviously, like I said, I've reiterated quite a lot. It's all about, you know, um, bouncing back and, and dealing with mental health and, and well-being and, and looking after ourselves. Um, and we have a little feature on the show, which is called Trip of the Week. Now, this is all about where I ask my guests to maybe admit a, a mistake that they've made in the last week or recently or something that's gone wrong with the message behind it that no matter what happens, it's it's OK and you can pick yourself up again. And like you said, you can find, find uh, the positive in that. So if you're thinking back over the last week or two, what would you say your trip of the week would be, Carol? My trip of the week? Um, wow. Sometimes it takes people a, a little while to think of. It can be anything. I mean, I've had from 
starting an argument for no reason to falling down the stairs there, there's been a whole mixture of each trip of the weeks but oh like a real trip <laughs> yeah literally a real trip at one point which threw me actually as the host <laughs> um i suppose it's no. quite good if it's if, if it's taking you a while to think i suppose it's quite good maybe there hasn't been one yeah i um well, maybe like there it, should be something because maybe if you haven't got a trip perfect. of the week maybe you can change it in, in terms of what you, you said obviously across the conversation a lot about turning the negative into the positive um and like i said a lot of people that listen to this uh, are young people instead of a trip of the week what what sort of bit of positive advice would you give to someone that might be struggling or going through a bit of a rough patch so to speak what would your what would carol baskin's one piece of advice be I think it's to always be grateful. That's how I start every day. When I wake up in the morning, I lay there and I think, wow, I'm so grateful that I woke up this morning and I'm so grateful that I have this opportunity to do something amazing and to try and set the planet back on course by saving these wild cats in the wild, which means healthy ecosystems and healthy habitats. And that gives us all clean air to breathe and clean water to drink if we're taking care of the planet. and um, so laying there and thinking about everybody who has made this possible, my family, my husband, uh, my daughter, of course, all of the people at the sanctuary that are in there taking care of the cats, no matter how hard you have to reach to be thankful for something, you know, just being thankful that you had a bed to sleep in last night and that you're not sleeping on the streets. I've been there. Um, being thankful that there is an opportunity today to do something different than you've ever done before. All of that gratefulness is what I think brings more of that into your life. And so maybe that's why I'm having a hard time thinking of a trip of the day because I'm always thinking about everything that makes me so happy and everything that is so good. Um, and it, it's a, it's a, practice you know it's not some it's not a mantra it's not i am happy i am grateful it's it's like really feeling that gratefulness mm. i suppose if anyone's listening and that when you couldn't think of a trip of the week if they're thinking of them right now to have that bit of advice to follow it i mean you know always being grateful and thankful um is something really positive and on the on the note of being grateful and thankful i think that sort of brings us to the end of the conversation. It's been brilliant to hear of your early experiences and, you know, the, the things you spoke about, obviously Tiger King and, and, and moving forward with that. Um, it's, it's been brilliant. It's been really, really cool. It's been amazing. So thank you so much. It's a true pleasure to have you on the show. Wish you all the very best with the, with the future. Um, is there anything you would like to say to the listeners before, before we go? Well, the only way that people in other parts of the world can help us fix this problem of tigers disappearing in the wild is to stop the captive breeding. We have to save them in the wild where they belong. And so when you see people on social media that are posing with these cats or uh, posting pictures of cute little baby cubs in captivity, call them out on that and let them know that that's not cool. The only reason people post those images is because they get, they get attention for it. And that's not how people need to get attention. People need to get attention by doing good in the world, not by exploiting baby animals. So I think everybody can be a part of saving this planet by ending this cub, hitting, cub handling abuse that we see online. 
what a way to finish. Carol Baskin, thank you so much. That was that was brilliant, a true pleasure. And um, I'm sure, I'm sure when this episode goes out, um, everyone will be fascinated to hear your story. So a big thank you. Thank you, Tom. So there you go, episode two with Carol Baskin. I really hoped you enjoyed that one, guys. It was such a great episode to record. To speak to someone like Carol, obviously, with her sort of story and her connections to Tiger King and have such a sort of a big guest on the show was a real, real privilege. So a big thank you to to Carol. So that was episode two. Episode three will be landing with you next month and the guest for that one will be revealed very shortly. So stay tuned. In the meantime, please keep supporting the podcast. Please keep sharing. And most importantly, please keep talking. This was Let's Get Talking Series 2, Episode 2. I'm your host, Tom, and we'll see you next time.